You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. I want to welcome everyone on behalf of New York Encounter. I'm Rita Simmons, and I'm going to be the moderator for this event. I want to introduce you to our esteemed guest, Mr. Dana Joya. Dana is the former poet, poet laureate of California. He's an internationally recognized poet and critic, the author of five collections of verse, including Interrogations at Noon, which won the American Book Award, and 99 Poems, New and Selected, which won the Poets' Prize. His critical collections include Can Poetry Matter, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Award. He's written four opera libretti and edited 20 literary anthologies. Dana Joya served as chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts from 2000 to 2009. He's received the Leitare Medal from Notre Dame, the Aiken Taylor Award in Modern Poetry, and the Presidential Citizens Medal. Dana is the Judge Whitney Professor of Poetry and Public Culture at the University of Southern California. So, Dana Joya. Good evening. Before we do anything else, let's just begin with a poem. Uh, last night, the opening of uh, Dante's Inferno was read, um, and this is a poem by, I think, the greatest of all American poets, Robert Frost, that was inspired by Dante's Inferno, and in it, uh, Frost describes his own personal hell. It's called Acquainted with the Night. I have been one acquainted with the night. I have walked out in rain and back in rain. I have outwalked the farthest city light. I have looked down the saddest city lane. I have passed the watchman on his beat and dropped my eyes, unwilling to explain. I have stood still and heard the sound of feet as far away an interrupted cry came over houses from another street, but not to call me back or say goodbye. And further still, at an unearthly height, one luminary clock against the sky proclaimed the time was neither wrong nor right. I have been one acquainted with the night. I just wanted to start with the sound of poetry, the enchantment of poetry. But now I want to in introduce myself again in a slightly different way. Uh, I am a working class Catholic guy from LA. 
My dad was Sicilian. He was a, when I was born. He was a cab driver, and then he went through you know several other occupations. My mom was Mexican. She was a phone operator. Uh, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Uh, but before I got to college, I had 12 years of Catholic education, eight of parochial school and, and four of an emeritus high school, and that has been the moral and the spiritual foundation of my life. Uh, I have, in a sense, always tried to write out of that. But growing up in the working class, where you don't really know people that are college educated, and, and you know, I first heard poetry recited by my mother, as I came into Stanford and Harvard, where I was educated, um, I was given a different view of poetry than the poetry uh, that I've been raised with. And then when I understood it, around the age of 19 or 20 that my life's work was to be a poet, I had to do something. And how many of you are, are the poets or fiction writers or dramatists? We must have, so, so that's actually, so we got maybe about 20% of the audience. Be honest, come on, you know, don't be shy. Uh, you can write bad stuff. <laughs> you, uh, most of all, will understand, in a sense of how do you define what it is you want to do and how you do it and what constitutes success, what are the standards to which you are writing. And this was very odd for me, and I want to speak out of, in a sense, my own uh, personal journey in terms of, of how I sorted that out. Now, the way I sorted it out may not be the way you sort it out, but Unfortunately, you have to listen to me first. Um, all of us, whether we're writers or not, whether, you know, if we're teachers, even if we're just readers, know that at the moment we are living through, about midway through, one of the largest changes in the history of literature. Uh, everything about the way we read, we write, we evaluate books, seems to have changed uh, over the last 25 years. Uh, this is true for fiction, it's true for theater, it's true for poetry. Now, we can talk about any of those things, but I'm only gonna talk about poetry tonight, but I think uh, you'll see that it generally applies to everything about, uh, about the whole enterprise of literature. Now, it was sort of strange when I, uh, if you go back 140 years, let's say about 1880, Poetry was the most popular art you could imagine. Everyone in the United States read poetry, they knew poems by heart, they recited them, they were part of family life, they were part of education, they were part of culture. By the time you got to 1980, none of that was true. Poetry had gone from a popular art into a kind of specialized art for the intellectuals. This is probably and you know, I don't think we have anybody here over 100. Uh, this is probably uh, the, the culture in which we grew up in, in which poetry was a very intellectual thing. People who were poets or who were poetry readers thought of it as a kind of, of uh, solitary, kind of highly private and individualized art. And by and large, a lot of it was visual. It was, typography on a page, a text on a page that someone read to themselves. Uh, needless to say that 
this academic uh, version of poetry, which is what most of us grew up with, was tremendously different from the entire history of poetry that had existed up to that point. Uh, and what we were seeing at that point, what we were all of us born into, was the sort of the end point, the high point of print culture, where literature, where information itself was printed, put in books, magazines, and newspapers, distributed, put on the shelves of libraries and bookstores, and that's what literature was. Uh, in print culture, poetry was almost universally seen as a dying art. Now, things changed. They have changed so radically uh, that, that even though you're living in this, you will, a lot of what I'll tell you is probably going to be news to you. But before we do that, I want to back up and say, what is poetry? What was the history of poetry before it became a dying art, uh, before it became a kind of, of marginal part of print literary culture? Poetry is the oldest form of literature. It not only pre-existed uh, what we think of as fiction, it was not only pre-existed theater, which originally was entirely poetic theater, poetry pre-existed writing. It came out of an oral culture, and it was, in a sense, if you think about this, it was a special kind of language that cultures developed because they had no other way of preserving knowledge, of preserving information, of preserving stories, preserving the sacred before writing. And so they developed a mnemonic form of language, a form of language you could memorize and you could perform. Now, the interesting thing about poetry, too, is if you, if you think about it in this gigantic time frame, poetry is, and I hate to disappoint any postmodernists in the audience, poetry is a universal art. Anthropologists have never found a single culture which doesn't have poetry, which is to say that doesn't have a, a way of heightening spoken language in a way that can be remembered, performed, passed on. And this is the interesting thing uh, you know, for this evening. If you go back to these cultures, and let's just go back to Greeks, what we think of as poetry, which was originally oral, even when it came into, after being write, write, written, it was not read. It wasn't, you know, uh, you know uh, I sing of Aeneas, blah, 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 blah. It was sung or chanted, or in the case of theater, rather like Broadway today, it was sung and danced and chanted. That's what choral poetry was. It had dance steps and tunes as well as the words. Now, uh, that grew over time into a point where we think of the poet singing, it becomes a metaphor. But it was true. The, if you go back to, uh, for example, Latin, what's the word, the Latin, okay, this is your quiz. What's the Latin word for poetry? It's, it's also a woman's name. Carmen. Carmen means poetry. It means a song. It means a magic spell. Those things were all 
in that same thing. In Italian, you know, canto, you know, becomes the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the similar word. So if you, now think about poetry in an ancient world in an existential sense. If you have no texts and you're hearing a poem, it means that somebody with whom you are in direct physical contact is reciting the poem. In a funny way, the audience and the, the creator, the performer, are part of the same communion, part of the same social unit. It's a person speaking to other people uh, with a direct relationship. Now, in the Western tradition, the earliest poet mythologically is Orpheus. And Orpheus finds a way of singing, which is so beautiful that nature, in a sense, bends uh, to his song. But most importantly, human beings who are at that point savage come out of the woods and create the first cities. Poetry enchants, uh, and that enchantment civilizes. Now, in 1990, poetry was a dying art. It was completely cut off from this ancient tradition. And then things changed. Now, I could describe the changes in a uh, number of ways, but let me just give you, I think, a, a fairly straightforward uh, and, and conclusive way. What changed poetry? Hip-hop, poetry slams, cowboy poetry, the revival of rhyme and meter, the revival of narrative poetry. These are five huge trends that happened in the United States. And what do they all have in common? What the heck does uh, Cool Herc inventing hip hop uh, have to, in common with cowboys uh, reciting their poems in Elko, Nevada, drunks having poetry slams at the Green Mill in Chicago, or formal poets at Westchester, you know, reciting sonnets and villanelles. I'll tell you what they have in common. All of that happened outside the university by people the university excluded. <laughs> uh, and you know, it's very interesting. There had never been as much money institutionalized behind the support of poetry as existed in the institutionalized academic creative writing system, which still goes on. But none of the innovation that has changed poetry came out of that kind of academic culture. It's very important uh, to recognize that. You could make the same case about classical music and, and many of the other arts. The uh, hyper-intellectualized form of academic sociology is now how art grows. Now, if you wanted to say, what's going on with poetry right now? Let me tell you something that you may or may not know. Poetry is currently the fastest growing art in the United States. Uh, not by a little, but by a lot. If you look at all the traditional arts, fiction, going to the theater, dance, and everything else, they are all shrinking. The participation is shrinking. Poetry uh, is growing rapidly, double-digit growth. If you look at the traditional arts, uh, who is leaving them the quickest? Who's not going to the theater the most? 
who is, you know, that's as much as like Jack Warner uh, saying they, they stayed away in droves. Um, you know, the, who is, you know who, people that aren't going to the opera, that aren't going to the symphony, it's the young. Among the young, by which I mean, this is an adult measure, 18 to 35, the readership for poetry has doubled in the last 10 years. Something is going on. And what's going on is that uh, poetry has reconnected with this ancient identity. And what does that mean? That this new poetry, this uh, new, I, I, call, I guess, populist poetry, this new oral poetry has this in common. It's popular, not elitist. It goes across all of society versus being academic. It is musical, it is not visual. It's, in fact, performative. How do people find new poetry nowadays? They go to poetry readings. Maybe they hear it on the radio. Those things actually, they look at it on YouTube. There are millions, and I'm not making a number of millions of poetry videos on YouTube. It is performative, musical, oral performance that has revived poetry. And what does that also mean? How is reading a book different from um, a poetry reading? One is private, the other is communal. Oral culture, in a sense, has reconnected poetry with its core identity, which is song. Poetry is a kind of song. Now, what does it mean to say that poetry is like song? I want to uh, just make a few observations about song. First of all, song is a universal human art. No one has found a culture in which people don't sing, just like poetry. Song is the most ancient art. Why? Because it and poetry were the same thing together. The very creative impulse that is at the core of humanity expresses itself first and foremost in song. Why? Because that's an art you can make only with your human body. You don't, you don't need a chisel, you don't need paint, you don't need a pen and ink, uh, you don't need costumes, you simply need your human body. Song is the ubiquitous art. Now, what that means is if you go to a culture, and this is true in New York City, you could do an elevator, they're playing song. You go uh, into a restaurant, they're playing songs. You go into a supermarket, they're playing. They're, they're doing these things, but in a, in a regular, you know, in a, in a traditional culture, they have the wedding songs and the planting songs and the harvesting songs and the fighting songs. And even in our culture, we still often sing our children to sleep. We sing to the babies. Uh, I know mothers that sing to their babes in their wombs, that there's this, in a sense, we have a song for every possible human occasion. Song is, in every culture, a sacred art. Song plays a central and inextricable role in the way we worship, the way we confront the divine. Uh, and we have this to celebrate, to invoke, to lament, to commemorate, to emulate the sacred, as well as what else does song do? It unites the worshipers. 
It's communal. Uh, song is uh, always, you know, in a sense, a way of creating community and often participation. Uh, the interesting part of a concert is when the audience begins to sing along with the performers. Uh, that you see the Dionysian energy, which so frightened Socrates, <laughs> happening at these things. Now, what is, why do we have song? What does song do that other things do? Song enchants. Song has a magical quality of, in a sense, of, of fastening and intensifying our attention. So we kind of relax and allow our memories, our intuition, our imagination closer to the surface. This is, in fact, my definition of poetry, language which is shaped to enchant. Because once I have you in a kind of, uh, that kind of trance, there can be a human transaction between us that you simply can't get in other forms of communication. Uh, next, and I think this is interesting. You may not know this in New York City, uh, but the world sings. The, you know, if you, uh, song is not merely limited to humanity, birds, insects, amphibians, land mammals, sea mammals, all sing. This is all this kind of universal natural response. When I walk out in Northern California at night, I hear the owls, I hear the frogs, I can recognize the different sorts of birds, I can hear the coyotes howl, and it's, in a sense, nature, the world is not quiet, it's musical. Which brings me to, to the fact is that we think of poetry, we think of music as very intellectual. You, know, you need a graduate degree to compose music, right? You, know, you have to take fugal theory and harmony and counterpoint. No, there's something else going on in poetry too, which is that what this impulse of song is, what song is a physical, intuitive activity. You can bring a lot of, of intensity to it through training and intellection, but what a song is, is something which speaks to us in the completeness of our humanity. If I sing to you, I don't ask you to separate your intellect from your emotions, your physical body from your imagination. Uh, I don't ask you to leave your memories behind. I, what I'm asking is just the opposite. I want everything that makes you a complete human being to come forward at the same time, and I'm not going to ask you to divide it. Uh, and that's the power of music. That's why we can be deeply moved by a song in a language we don't even understand, because enough of the meaning comes through that we feel uh, its intent. And finally, song is our metaphor for paradise. When Dante ends uh, in the you know in the Paradiso in the highest reaches of heaven, the blessed, in communion with the divine, express their state in choral singing. You have some solos by the saints as they go up. You know, my favorite being you know the, the hymn to the Virgin Mary, uh, and so 
That is, in a sense, the reality that we are recapturing in poetry right now. Now, if I wanted to say, what were the two most important moments for me as a poet? These are the ones that, that I would give. You know, I've been writing poetry, you know, half my, you know, kind of brain, you know, intellection and, you know, half on intuition, uh, you know, for years. And suddenly I realized, you know, because I'd be writing and I, and I want to tell you how I feel. And I realized that a, a good poem is not about me. And frankly, I hate to tell you, it's not about you. <laughs> it's about us. It's about, in a sense, creating a common space where I can bring what I have and you can bring what you have and we can collaborate on what it means, on what it means to feel. And it, that's what a great artist does, is to create a space that we share uh, in which experiences are possible that aren't possible otherwise. Because most of the language that we have every day, you know, is about, this is what I think, what, are the, is, what do you, you know, go back and it's transactional, you know, it's, it's very much owned by the people that are speaking. And the second really deep insight that I had, which was just a little bit later, was that a poem is not made up of ideas, it's frankly not even made up of words, uh, in the sense that we think of words, a poem is a kind of series of physical sounds. And those sounds have a rhythm, they have words with meaning, they have a kind of tune, they have a kind of tone. And it is the combination of those things in the same way uh, that speaks to your physical body, your mind, your imagination, your memory, your intuition, but not ask you to divide those, that you create, in a sense, you communicate what a poem really means. You know, there's a lot of poems that uh, one could give that, you know, that I've read for years, I know by heart, I don't know what they mean. Oh, do not go to, this is Edith Wharton. I don't know if you know, I'm not anywhere to receive Edith Sidwell, a Catholic uh, poet. Uh, she converted, kind of an eccentric British aristocrat who converted uh, in her 70s. I think Graham Greene was her godfather. She has a, a poem called Scottish Rhapsody, which begins, Oh, do not take a bath in Jordan, Gordon, on the holy Sabbath, on the peaceful day, said the old bag, the old Scotsman playing on his bagpipe, boring to death the pheasant and the snipe, boring the ptarmigan and grouse for fun, boring them worse than a nine-bore gun, till the tartan leaves with the froons were ripe, heard a flaxen wind a-groaning through the pipe, and they heard MacPherson say, where do the winds go at hotels, hide their umbrellas and their gay umbrellas, and would there be room, would there be room, would there be room for me? There is a hotel at Ostend, cold as the wind without an end, haunted by ghostly poor relations of Bostonian conversations, like bagpipes rotting in the walls. And there the pearl ropes fall like shawls with the sound of marine waterfalls. And another little drink wouldn't do us any harm, pierces through the sabbatical calm, and that is the place for me. So 
Do not go to take a bath in Jordan, Gordon, on the Holy Sabbath, on the peaceful day, or you'll never get to heaven, Gordon McPherson, and speaking merely as a private person, that is the place, that is the place, that is the place for me. <laughs> what does that mean? I mean, it has something to do with the Scottish Presbyterian sabbatical behavior as well as their, their, their favorite national pastime, which is drinking. Um, but it's, it's, it's about all kinds of things, but it's, what it really is is about an experience. And I can't imagine any two people that have that, uh, draw the same things from that experience. But that doesn't in the least take away from the genuineness of it as a work of art. Uh, so if we return to Orpheus for a second, we return to that foundational myth that we have for the Western poet. Um, I think we can, I, most great myths, most myths that survive for thousands of years, it's true. What does poetry do? Poetry is language which calls us together. Poetry is the language which, in a sense, arrests us from a kind of, of anarchistic uh, state of consciousness. Uh, it brings us into community and it civilizes us. Uh, so those of you who are poets in the audience, we are living in a wonderful moment. A moment in a sense which, uh, without almost any of the help of the experts, the people themselves have called us back into our art, have asked us in a sense to, in a, to have a kind of public conversation with us, and asked us to do what a poet likes more than anything else in the world, which is to sing. Thank you. Rita wanted me to read some poems. Good, I left um, uh, enough time to, to uh, do this. I think I'll just read you uh, three poems. I think I can get through them in, in the time thing. Let me just start with a, a this is a poem, and, and once again, if you are a poet, guess what? Songwriters need you, musicians need you. And I get asked all the time to write lyrics, to write libretti and stuff like this. Uh, allow yourselves to collaborate. Helen Sung, a wonderful jazz pianist, asked me to write a jazz song cycle with her, and this is one of the poems from it. It's a very LA poem about the, you know, LA is where the beautiful people go. Uh, not that some of you aren't rather handsome tonight, but you know, in LA we'd have a little higher quotient. Uh, the, uh, and, and it's about the power that, that beauty gives you and what happens to that power. It's called Pity the Beautiful. Pity the beautiful, the dolls and the dishes, the babes with big daddies granting their wishes. Pity the pretty boys, 
the hunks and Apollos, the golden lads whom success always follows, the hotties, the knockouts, the tens out of ten, the drop dead gorgeous, the great leading men. Pity the faded, the bloated, the blousy, the paunchy Adonis whose luck's gone lousy. Pity the gods, no longer divine. Pity the night, the stars lose their shine. Let's keep the door, yeah, the door closed, please. Um, <laughs> Now, most of the art we see in museums was sacred, but now, you know, it's basically put, you know, uh, in a, such a way that it's turned into a kind of an object for aesthetic contemplation that's cut off from its original purposes of worship. This is a poem spoken by a statue in a museum. In this case, it's the statue of a, an angel. It's a Mexican angel, folk art, so we don't know really who, who made it and it's been damaged in the Mexican Revolution. Uh, it's called Angel with the Broken Wing. I am the angel with the broken wing, the one large statue in this quiet room. The staff finds me too fierce, and so they shut Faith's ardor in this air-conditioned tomb. The docents praise my elegant design above the chatter of the gallery. Perhaps I am a masterpiece of sorts, the perfect emblem of futility. <laughs> Mendoza carved me for a country church. His name's forgotten now, except by me. I stood beside a gilded altar where the hopeless offered God their misery. I heard their women whispering at my feet, prayers for the lost, the dying and the dead. Their candles stretched my shadows up the wall, and I became the hunger that they fed. I lost my left wing in the revolution. Even a saint could savor irony. When troops were sent to vandalize the chapel, they hit me once, almost apologetically. For even the godless feel something in a church a twinge of hope, fear, who knows what it is, uh, an ancient, a hunger not accounted by their laws, an ancient memory that they can't dismiss. There is so much to tell God. The howling of the damned can't reach that high, but I stand here like a dead thing nailed to a perch a crippled saint against a painted sky. That poem, and actually the next, uh, uh, the next one I, I'm gonna read, were both published in the Hudson Review. And I'm delighted that this evening the uh, editor of the Hudson Review, Paula Dietz, is in the audience. Paula, I won't ask you to stand up because I know you. Uh, but you know, uh, it's the magazine that I've been most grateful to as a writer. And now I'm going to end with a poem about marriage. We don't have many 
poems that praise a good marriage. Uh, and I think one reason is that it's hard because so much of what makes a marriage good is private. And I think at the center of that is that when you and your spouse together over the years create a private language and you will never have an idiom as intimate as that with anyone else in the world. And it's wonderful and it's fragile because if you lose that person, the two of you are the only native speakers of that uh, patois. You know, it's rather like these California Indian magazine, you know, languages, these tribes that only have two or three speakers left. When those people die, the language, the dances, the songs vanish. Marriage of many years. Most of what happens, happens beyond words. The lexicon of lip and fingertip defies translation into common speech. I recognize the musk of your dark hair. It always thrills me, though I can't describe it. My finger on your thigh does not touch skin. It touches your skin, warming to my touch. You are a language I've learned by heart. This intimate patois will vanish with us. It's only native speakers. Does it matter? Our chants, our dances, our tribal chants performed the special sorcery we most required. They bound us in a spell time could not break. Let the young vaunt their ecstasy. We keep our tribe of two in solemn secrecy. What must be lost was never lost on us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.